And that is the series that we have been walking through since Easter, that, that this is love. And I encourage you guys every week just to look up, simply to look up at who Jesus is. And we've said that if we, individually and collectively, if we see who Jesus is, how he treats us, how he sees us, our identity in him, it would change, completely transform us and the way we live and the way we see people. I just want to say, uh, just, if you didn't know, for the next few months, Blake mentioned it, we'll be having one service. You guys are at the correct time, so come back same time next week. I had to say the first service, like, don't come back. Do come back, just not at 9.30, come back at 11. And we are going to be full. We know this. But there's a couple of reasons. Let me tell you why we're doing one service for two months, June and July. Just for two months, um, we'll for sure we're moving on to two. And hey, if we invite enough people in the fall, let's go to three. We're not again it. I'm not again it. I, God is blessing us. We're seeing lots of new faces. Many of you guys are new today. And I hope that you've sensed who we are, that we're a family. We're a family, not only a family, we're a family on mission, and God is working, and, and it's, it's so fun to be a part of. But for the next two months, June and July, starting next week, because of the lunch, which I hope you come to, I'm going to come back to that in a little bit at the end of my message. But starting next week, and then June and July, we'll have one service at 11 a.m. I would encourage you to come at 9.30 still and find a small group. We'll have several offered. We got room. I hope we pack out those small groups. Small groups for us are a time to open scripture and build community around that scripture. And so I hope you come at 9.30 during the summer for a small group at 9.30, and then come at worship. Come and worship. If you are in town in the summer, man, just say you're not going to want to miss what God does in June and July this year. We'll be, in, we'll be in this room. We'll have to add a bunch of chairs. We realize that. But I want you guys, two purposes uh, for, for going to one service, really three. One is to give some of our volunteers a break because we have some tireless volunteers that work so hard. And so to go to one service for a few months gives them a little bit of a breather. And another one is we want you to be known. If you, have, if you don't know this and you're new, we are probably not the church to come and kind of come and then go and not be known. This is a place to, to know and to be known. And so we're going to do a, an, old, an old Tommy thing. When you come on Sunday, the first Sunday of June, we're going to give everybody a name tag. It's like, whoa. We did this very early on. Our church is two years old. Early on, we wore name tags on Sundays because we didn't know anybody. Right? We didn't know anybody. But we have so many new faces. We want to take a couple of months where we, we, are, we are known. Know and be known. And the, the third reason is I want us to be a family unified before we step into the fall. God is working. We are dreaming big. I want to make sure that we move, not only move forward, but we move forward together. And having us all in the same room, it's just easier. Because you guys in the room probably don't even know a lot of the people that have come now to the first service. And so, so let's reconnect intentionally for the purpose of moving onward together for the mission of God. So this is love. Last week, we, we unpacked a, an amazing story of Jesus calling Matthew the tax collector. And that Jesus spent, intentionally spent time with the least of these and we said this, since when we look at Jesus, it changes everything, we have to see Jesus for who he is and how he lived. We, we understood last week that Jesus was our approachable Savior. 
He was so approachable. He never, he never had ran people away who came to him. He's always welcoming those. And so we love this picture of Jesus. We love it that, that no matter how far we run away, we are always welcomed back by Jesus. I love that. He is the approachable Savior. And we said because he is that way, the church is to be that way individually and collectively. We are to, to live lives personally that are approachable, that, that the people around us sense, like this is somebody I would want to, to hang out with. This is somebody I'd want to have some deep conversations with. Why? Because we welcome them and we live an invitational life. And, and that's the way we live. Also, it says volumes for us as a church in our culture. That we are to have a culture where everyone, no matter who they are, is welcome here. Everybody is welcome here. We are to be an approachable church. Now, now, that being said, we will love them where they are, and we will love them to where they need to go in Jesus Christ. And it's, it's a both and, not an either or. And as true as it is that the love of Jesus drives him to be approachable, that amazing love of Jesus, that same love drives him to stand for truth. I said last week to come back this week. So many of you guys did. I'm so thankful Last week, we, we said that Jesus is approachable, but this week, there is an other, the other side, that Jesus unequivocally stood for truth. He stood for truth. And, and standing firm on the timeless treasure of truth in Scripture is, for the church, our most loving position in our culture. It's our most loving position as culture. It is important that we are approachable as people, that anyone is invited and can be a part of our family. But it is equally as important that we lovingly position ourselves to stand for truth. And we realize that this is a delicate balance. This is a delicate balance. If we waver on one side or the other, heavy on one side or the other, it will not be healthy. So there is... For the church and for us individually, there's a sweet spot in this, that we are an approachable people and that we are a people that never, ever compromise the word of God and the truth within it. And so what does that look like? I find myself asking this week, what does that look like for the body of Christ? I want to give you a statement. I would encourage you to think about it, one, and maybe write it down. As you came in, you got a bulletin, the top part of that on the back, or some sermon notes. We're going to get to those four blanks here in a moment as we turn to Matthew chapter 21. So if you got your Bible, I always encourage you to bring your Bible. Grab your Bible, that treasure of God to us, his love letter to us. Open it to Matthew chapter 21. So here's a statement for you when it comes to the church. If we stop being approachable, we have lost sight of Jesus. Think about that. If we stop being approachable, we have a lost sight of Jesus. And if we have stopped speaking truth, we have done the same. We have lost sight of Jesus. And so I invite you anew today to look at Jesus, to look up and see who he is, see how he treated people and see what he stood for. So important that we get this. This story, I understand, may or may not be true, but I think I've shared with this maybe before. But speaking of truth, there was a lady, an elder lady, who was so passionate about her faith. 
She, would, she was very bold about her faith, and she would step out onto her front porch every morning, and she would say at the top of her lungs, praise the Lord. Now, she had a neighbor who did not believe in God. He was an atheist, and this would anger him so. And so he began every morning after she would step out and say, praise the Lord, he would step out. He said, he would say, there ain't no Lord. This would happen every morning. One morning, the lady, the elderly lady had fallen on hard times. She'd run out of money and she was just praying that morning. She stepped out and she said, praise the Lord. I need food. I'm hungry. Lord, would just give me some groceries? And she went back into her house. The next morning, she stepped out of her house and opened her door and There at her doorstep were some groceries. And she said, praise the Lord. And her neighbor jumped out from behind the trees. And she said, he said, ha, I told you there was no Lord. I bought those groceries. And she said even louder, praise the Lord. God, you provided me for groceries and you made the devil pay for it. (laughs) I like that one. May or may not be true. You never know these preacher stories. <laughs> what I want to talk about today is a specific stance on truth. I could talk about a lot of things when it comes to standing on truth. But, but there is such thing as righteous anger. There is such thing as righteous anger. And I want to have a conversation today about righteous anger. Is that okay? Can we talk about that? I don't think it's talked about a lot in church. But there is such thing as righteous anger. So what is righteous anger? Let me simply define it. Anger, righteous anger is being angry at what makes God angry. Okay? That's pretty simple. That doesn't blow your mind. And may we acknowledge that any other kind of anger is unrighteous anger. That's the sobering one for me. When I got to that as I studied, like any time that I'm angry that doesn't align with the anger that God shows in Scripture toward things, that, for me, I am practicing unrighteous anger. And as we think about this, we have to know that there is a righteous anger, but Scripture over and over and over again cautions us about our anger. It says to beware of our anger because anger can cause a root of bitterness in our life that that can lead to all kinds of evil and bad things in our life, all kinds of brokenness in our relationships. Over and over in Scripture, it says be careful with this thing called anger. But Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26 seems to say the opposite. It actually gives us a command. It says be angry. So be careful not to be angry, but then it turns around and says, be angry, and it goes on to say in verse 26 of Ephesians 4, and do not sin in your anger. So be angry and do not sin, and do not let the sun go down on your anger. It's just hard for us. It's a little bit unsettling for us that that we know, like, man, we got to really be careful about our anger because we know the fruit of that in our lives. All of us have been angry about something. And we realize, like, man, that that can lead us to some pretty dark places uh, because we all deal with it. But at the same time, Scripture says to be angry. And what we're talking about, what Paul was talking about there, and and the passage that we're going to read today, is Jesus is going to model this perfectly for us, is to be righteously angry. 
that there is such thing and there should be. If we're to see Jesus for who he is, yes, he is an approachable Savior, but he is a righteous Savior who did at times get righteously angry. So let's read Matthew chapter 21, beginning in verse 12. As we pick up, Jesus came in with his disciples and he had his triumphal entry. We studied that passage the Sunday before Easter. And so they are coming in, as we pick up, they are there for the purpose of worshiping God in the, in the time of the Passover festival. And so what was that? What was the Passover festival? That was the time that they came together to celebrate and to remember the miracle of the Exodus and all that happened within it. Specifically, they called it Passover because they were remembering that there were the ten plagues when, when God's people, God's chosen people, were for hundreds of years in bondage and slavery in Egypt. And they cried out to God and he heard their cry and he sent Moses and Aaron and he sent them before Pharaoh. And Moses would say, let my people go. This happened over and over and over again. And Pharaoh hardened his heart, but it was that tenth one that was put him over the top. That, that there was the killing of the firstborn. And that was just the one that went over the top. But for the people of God, if they found a spotless lamb and they sacrificed it, they took that blood and put it over their doorposts, the angel of the Lord would pass over and their firstborn would be saved. And so they were remembering this, the, the goodness of God in this. And we know because Jesus crawled up on the cross that we look up to, that he poured his blood out for us. This is a picture of, of the Savior, the, the, the spotless Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. We know this now, looking through the lens of the New Testament, that they're just celebrating that act in the Old Testament in Exodus. And so Jesus was there with his disciples coming in during Passover as we pick up in verse 12. And Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. May I make a note for you that... When Jesus began his ministry at around 30 years old, that, that this is what he did first as well. He entered the temple and he did what he was about to do. So this was the second time that Jesus had done this. One at the beginning of his ministry and now at the end, the last week before his crucifixion. So Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. And it is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. Do you see what happened there? What happened there was Jesus experiencing and practicing and responding to righteous anger. He saw wrong and he was angry about it and he did something about it. So we began reading in verse 14. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David. What is that statement? Hosanna means save us. And who was the son of David? Well, that was the Messiah. He was over and over said that he would be the, in the line of David. So he, that was the term that they would use for the Messiah. They were saying, here he is. The Messiah is in front of us. Jesus, you are the Messiah. And then the leaders, they, that's the leaders, the religious leaders, they were indignant. That's a big word. I'll come back to that in a little bit. Do you hear what these children are saying, they ask him? They ask Jesus. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never 
read, and the implication there is, yes, they definitely had. These religious leaders had memorized the first five books of our Bible, and they were well aware of, of this statement out of the book of Psalms, from the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise. And he left them and went out to the city, to Bethany, where he spent the night. One thing of note is that any time that the religious leaders questioned Jesus, he always responded with Scripture. That should say something to us, that there is absolutely, that truth is absolutely found in Scripture, and Jesus knew that it was all he needed. All he had to do was respond with the truth of Scripture. Jesus always referred back to the Word of God when questions, and he knew it, and he used it regularly. So I want to use this passage to talk about, yes, we are to be an approachable people, but we are to be a people that stand for truth. And what does that look like? We're going to have three C's in this passage that I want to, that I want to push you to. The first is this. In verse 12, we find the cleansing. That's what happened first. Jesus came in and he cleansed. What did he cleanse specifically? This is important to note. Jesus cleansed the temple. He did not come to cleanse the culture. That's important here. I think many times the church takes it as we need to first so focus on the culture, but we have something wrong on the inside of our temple, the temple of God. And so please note that Jesus was cleansing the temple. In other words, these people that he was talking to, they knew better. They knew better. Last week when we, we talked about the, the tax collector, Matthew, when Jesus approached him and said, follow me, what did he do? He just said, follow me. And he went to their house and he had dinner with them. He reclined with them. He made himself home, not with sin, but with sinners. That's our approachable Savior. Isn't that cool? What he did not do was when he came to the tax collector and there was all kind of stuff happening that was evil right there, all kind of stealing, he did not take that table and flip it over because he knew that would ruin his witness. He knew that would ruin his testimony. But when he saw it in the temple, the house of God, man, he did. He flipped it over. That righteous anger kicked in. You guys know better. You have got to stop this. Get out of my house. Get off my lawn, Jesus said. Get out of my house. Well, why was it such a big deal? They had quite a bit of reading about this this week. And the, the first century of Jewish historians, they said in that time, there were some practices going on that Jesus would have seen. The first is this. This is why it was so heinous at what they were doing, what Jesus saw with his own eyes that made him so angry. So people from all around the, the known world would come to celebrate Passover. They would come from all around. They would, they would have to come and they would bring their money from wherever they were. But that money would have an image of their leader. So if they were in the Roman Empire, it would have who on it? It would have Caesar on it, right? Well, the problem with that is they needed to buy a sacrifice. So whether it be a dove, whether it be for the, for the poor, it would have been the dove or a pigeon for people who had more, more substance and wealth, maybe it would have been a lamb. And so they make the sacrifice of their own means, but they come and make this journey and Practically, they couldn't bring those animals. All of them couldn't bring those animals. They were coming from a long way. And so they would have to buy that animal. Well, here's what was happening. They would, they would have to transition that money. They would have to exchange it for the money in the temple that didn't have the, the, the image of a leader because that was considered to be idolatry. But the problem was, like when you travel, if you were to get on a plane and you were to travel, let's just say to Germany, 
you would have to, to exchange your money for, what's the, what's the money in Germany? What is it? It's a euro, I think. Is that right? <laughs> so you would have to exchange your money. And so when you exchange money anywhere, usually it's like 2, 3, 4, 5, 6%. Right? You lose money. They charge you to exchange the money. Right? So in that time, they were charging these people, many of them very poor people, in, in the temple, they were charging them 25, at least 25% to exchange their money. So they were robbing the poor people. And then they had to take the money, whatever they had left, that 75% they had left, they would take it and they would have to go buy, let's just say, a dove. And at that time, they were, they were charging 10 times the value of a dove in the temple. They could go somewhere else and buy it elsewhere, but it wasn't fit for the sacrifice. When they got to the temple, they were charging 10 times. So when Jesus saw this, he was enraged, a righteous anger, and he cleansed the temple. You see, it begins there in God's house. It begins there. Righteous anger, just as we said last week when we talked about this, this, this idea of humility, that to be approachable, you have to be humble. Like there, there is a reality that, that if we're going to live with integrity, righteous anger starts with us. In other words, we have to take the log out, our, out of our own eye before we take the speck out of someone else's. Our, our righteous anger should come from, should come from humility. It should, it should come from a place of being grieved and angered by our own perverting of God's goodness and that we should repent in addressing before we address anyone else's wrongdoing. And so Jesus cleansed his house. In verse 13, we see the second thing. We see corruption. We see the corruption of the people. In one commentary, Kurt Richardson, he points out that the people expected Jesus, the Messiah, to attack the Roman authorities. Instead, he attacked the Jewish degradation of worship. Because here's what was happening. They were there in the outer courts. And the outer courts were where the Gentiles could come. And the whole purpose of the temple was a space where people could go and speak and hear from God. They could go and worship and pray. And so these tables were out in the places where everybody could come. And there was no room left for them to do what the temple was intended to do. So the big sin was not what they were doing as much as it was keeping Gentiles from worshiping. That was the corruption the leaders were doing so many things. And maybe even we could say that those things were practical to begin with. Maybe they were just, okay, next, next year, let's not, you don't have to bring your doves, we'll provide one next year. And maybe that was good. We don't know. Maybe over time it became more and more corrupt. We don't know. But they were doing so many things there that there was no room left for the Gentiles to do what that temple was meant to do, and that was to be a place of prayer in a place of worship. And we could say today, and we should say, we must be careful of doing the same thing. We can do so many good things in the church that we miss the best thing. Good, many times, is the enemy of the best. And no, many times, leads to a greater yes. And so we need to be careful to keep things simple so that we accomplish the simple mission that we have, that is to know God and to help others know Him. And to make disciples that make disciples. And to plant churches that plant churches. That's our mission in, in a nutshell right there. That's simple. And if we ever do so many things, good things, and we miss those things, 
We are a corrupt people. We have corrupted the house of God. That's why David says in the Psalms, Psalm 27, 4, One thing I ask of the Lord, and that I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. You see, there is one thing that matters most. And there was one thing when Jesus saw the temple courts that day, there was one thing that there was no space for, and that was connecting to the one true God. The third thing, we find a turn in verse 14. I love this turn. It's interesting that it's nestled within. There's this corruption, and then there's what happens in verse 14, and then we come back, and then there's a challenge. That's our fourth C. But don't miss what's nestled in between. And in the midst of Jesus' righteous anger, there's two verses where he practices it, and he cleanses the temple. And the very next verse, look who Jesus is. Verse 14, the blind and the lame came to him at the temple. And he healed them. I love that. Isn't that great relief for you? In the midst of his righteous anger, Jesus had these needy people that came to him, and he stopped, and he was compassionate. And so, yes, there's a cleansing, and there's corruption, but then there is the compassion. And don't miss that contrast. Jesus moves immediately from a place of righteous anger to a place of compassionate healing. Can I just tell you today that this is the position of the, that the church is to have? We are, we are to be known for being an approachable, compassionate people and to be known at the same time of being a people who stand for the truth and act on the truth of God in the culture that he has placed us in. You see, we can't be known only for anger and standing for the truth. We should be widely known for being a compassionate people. And if we're to be honest, you probably know people that it seems that they say, hey, some people in the church, you guys have the love thing down. You guys be compassionate, and I'll be the angry uncle. Can I just tell you that that's just not found in Scripture, and Jesus never modeled that for us. We are to be 100% compassionate and 100% truth-sayers in our culture. And we can't separate the two. And that's what we see here modeled so well that Jesus moved naturally from seeing something that was wrong and acting, acting in the culture and, and, and honoring God through that. He moved directly to seeing these people who were in need. And it was over, he was overwhelmed with compassion and he healed them. I, sa- I said to you guys many times, Oh, by the way, uh, so in that balance, if you read the Gospels, one of them that we're reading now, Jesus got angry 15 times, I counted them, 15 times that I could find. And so Jesus said, righteous anger is okay. He modeled that. Uh, Do you know how many times Jesus showed kindness in those books? Would you say it's over 15? I didn't count them. But he got to 15 in the book of Matthew in the first couple of chapters. It was hundreds of times. So if we're going to live as Jesus did, maybe have that same balance, that we will stand for truth and have righteous anger when needed, but we are to be known as a people of kindness and mercy and goodness and compassion. I've said to you guys many times, you see what you're looking for. I know that's a deep statement. 
Craig Crochet kind of turns that a little further, and he says, he says, we often find what we are looking for. He goes on to say, if we're looking for a reason to be offended, we will find it. And that's kind of what I think nowadays. I'm just talking generally of the church, the Western church. It seems that many people are just looking for triggers to offend them and be angry. If we're looking for that, we'll find it. But he goes on. He says, if we're looking for a reason to be thankful, we will find it. And he asks the question, what are you looking for today? And he quotes Psalm 118, 24. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. You see, what we see is our choice. What we see is our choice. And so, so even reading this passage, I mean, we could read it, and I could have preached a whole sermon on the anger of Jesus Christ and not even looked at verse 14, but Jesus was both always. So just as the wicked, prideful, and unrepentant, those were the religious leaders, they were the wicked, the prideful, and the unrepentant can expect God's anger. The opposite is true, equally true. Those who humbly seek him can't always expect his compassion. I love that. We, we need unchanging truths in our lives in this changing days that we live in. You can know in your life that if you are unrepentant and prideful in your life, the righteous anger of God will be moved towards you, and there will be consequences. You can take that to the bank. But the opposite is true as well, and it will always be true. If you are humble and you are repentant, you can expect today his compassion, and he's a compassionate God. He's equally righteous as he is compassionate and kind, and we are to be too. Verse 15 to 17, we get the challenge. That's the fourth C. The religious leaders saw what was going on, and they, they were filled with being indignant. And that word comes from the verb that means to be stirred up in, guess what the word is, the definition? Stirred up in anger. And it leads to fury, and it leads to the idea of wrath. So we have Jesus, who's, who's modeling this righteous anger for us, and then he's modeling compassion for us, and then we have these religious leaders who are modeling unrighteous anger, fury toward the Messiah, which is so interesting, by the way. In their sinful anger, just a few days later, Jesus went to the cross and paid for the sin of that anger. That they were looking at Jesus the Messiah in, in person. Can you imagine? And they were angry at him. They are angry at the truth. They are angry at what's going on. And there's a little uh, twist here. If you look at it, it's a little awkward uh, for some people in the room. But Jesus quotes scripture because that's what Jesus did. And the people were crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. And he responded to the the religious leaders in verse 16, from the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise. I think that this is not only a messianic prophecy, I believe in that moment, we don't know for sure, that that was fulfilled right there. Can you imagine that right there in the temple courts, when those kids and babies, a day after their parents, when they saw Jesus, said, Hosanna, Hosanna to the Son of David, the Messiah. A day after that, when they saw who Jesus was and what he did, they cried out, Hosanna, that there were babies. Can you imagine? That would mess you up. If you were in the temple that day and you were holding a baby and that baby started talking, that'd mess you up, wouldn't it? 
I think that may have happened that day. God can do that. If rocks can cry out to worship him, God can do, make babies talk. And right there, and then the, in the midst of that reality of so many acknowledging that this was the Messiah, the religious leaders, in their pride, they were indignant. And Jesus responded that, to that with truth. And with that statement, what was happening there, this is what Jesus was saying. Do you know this is what the people are saying? This is what the religious people are asking? What did Jesus say with, with his statement? Absolutely yes. He responded by saying, this is true. I am he. I am the Messiah. And then what did he do? He left them. So what we have here is in Scripture a mic drop moment for Jesus. He left. Why did he leave? I think two things here. One thing is Jesus never stays where he's not welcome. That's true for you today. If you don't welcome Jesus, he won't stick around. I mean, he's with you, and anytime you can run back to him, but if you want to experience his manifest presence, if you don't welcome him, that's what was happening there. He left. But also, Jesus was on a mission. He was always on a mission. He was just days away from crawling on that cruel cross and dying for your and my sins and the sins of the world so that we might have life, we might have hope of eternity with him. So I want to come back to that promise I made to you. What, is that, what does this passage mean for us as the body of Christ? What does righteous anger look like in a Christian? First thing is this. Righteous anger is roused by evil that profanes God's holiness and perverts his goodness. And so when we see this, and we're seeing through the eyes of Jesus we should, because we're growing in his likeness, we should be triggered, just as Jesus was. We should see it when it doesn't line up with the holiness and the goodness of God. We should know Jesus and his truth well enough to readily discern this for ourselves. The second thing is this. Righteous anger first sees the log in our own eyes. That's what I talked about. Man, this is motivated from a place of humility, from a place of grief of our own sin first before we try to point out someone else's. The third thing is this. Righteous anger is grieved, not merely infuriated by evil. Did you get that? Righteous anger is grieved, not merely infuriated by evil evil. What does that mean? Well, we should have a problem with the evil, but we should be grieved that, that it is being practiced by someone else, a sinner just like us. Anger with no tears over evil is often evidence of a lack of love in us. We've lost the sight of a loving Savior, and we've Still seeing a truthful Savior, but not a loving Savior. The fourth thing is this. Righteous anger is governed by God's love and is therefore slow to be expressed. Quick to be discerned, but slow to be expressed. You see, when we see the anger of God characterized in Scripture over and over, like in Psalm 103.8, it says the Lord is compassionate and gracious. He is, what's the word? Blank to anger. Slow to anger. Slow to anger. Abounding in love. We have to truly want mercy to triumph over judgment. See, the heart matters. The motivation of our anger is what bursts a righteous anger in our life. It must have a redemptive motive within it. From righteous anger, the fifth thing, 
Act swiftly when necessary. There are some things that when we see it, just as Jesus did, we need to act on it. Some things. I mean, in our day, we're talking about like the killing of unborn babies. Like we should be a part of protecting these. Like that should trigger us. As we look at scripture and the truth within it, like we should be a part of praying. We should be a part of, of local and, and state and national by voting in those things. We need to vote our biblical principles. We need to, to speak the truth in love uh, quickly about things like that and abuse and sex trafficking and human slavery and adultery and persecution of the church all around the world. There are things that we should act today when we see those things few takeaways as we close. First is this, balance is essential. Balance is essential. We have to walk the same balance of Jesus of being compassionate and standing in and for truth. Second thing, be careful about commercializing God. And that's what these religious leaders had done. They'd found a way to make money in God's house. They found a way to commercialize God. But God is not a product to be sold. He is a creator to be known. Can we just acknowledge that? That this church and no church has anything better to offer than God himself. And yeah, we can have some nice music. I mean, we got great gifted instrumentalists. And yeah, we might laugh and say some good things up here on the stage. And, and yeah, we got some great stuff for your kids. We've got some great brisket. And, and we're going to do some incredible things in the coming days. But listen, there is nothing that we have to offer anybody better than knowing their creator, the God of the universe. There is nothing better than that. We need to be careful that we don't seek the coffee and donuts more than we seek God, and that's just kind of trivial, isn't it? I like donuts. I love them. Shipley's is the best. I don't care what you say. I don't care what you say. And I hope that we had enough donuts so that you got one when you came in. There's probably none left right now. But I love coffee, and that's some great coffee, by the way, we have. We have a coffee called Commissional Coffee, 100% of profit that, that goes, goes toward missions. This guy right here makes it. It's incredible. It's fresh roasted. It's the best that you've had today. I promise it's the best. If you haven't had it, you should go get some. There's probably some left. Commissional. It's great. It's great. But we have a problem, and we seek it more than we seek God. Listen to this. Here's a, here's a follow-up statement. We need to be careful not to seek our preference more than his presence. We need to be very careful in church not to care more about our preference in worship or anything else than his presence. And preference matters. Your preference in worship and church matters. And actually, we are very mindful of that. One of our core values is that we will be a multi-generational church. And so what you've experienced today is you came on this campus and saw it with your eyes and heard with your ears and, and, and the fellowship that happens is all informed by that value of being multi-generational. But listen, none of our preferences is more important than the presence of God. He is the ultimate treasure. And that's why it says in the book of Hebrews, let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Let us focus. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. I'm going to ask the band to come, and sometimes I tell personal stories. I didn't realize it 
for you guys in the room, for you guys joining us online, I didn't get to welcome the online crowd. We're so thankful for technology that you guys get to, from all around the world, join us. What a gift. I want to tell you a very personal story in my life. As I think about that, let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Let's not focus on anything else more than focusing on Jesus. I'm so glad in a few weeks, uh, about a month and a half, our students are going to be going to youth camp at Pawnee Woods Baptist Encampment. It's a special place for me. I'm going to tell you why in a minute. But if you've not signed up, a little side note, if you've not signed up for our lunch next week, I hope that you do right now. Take that connection card, that little white piece of paper, that tear off on the back. You can say, if you're coming and how many. Uh, we're going to have some great brisket, but I want to make sure to have enough. And $5 a person, 12 and under, it's free. You won't find a cheaper and better tasting meal next Sunday at noon. So I hope you come at 11 and stick around, but please do sign up so we make sure to have enough food. We got room. We'll have enough food as long as you sign up, but I do hope you come. And then we hope you raise more than we need to send our students to camp. What a gift. You know why? Because at that same place, I had a Jesus moment in the middle of the 1990s. Middle of that, so just rewind. I grew up in Livingston, Texas. I grew up going every summer when I was, in, when I was young. I went to uh, RA, RA camp at Pawnee Woods Baptist Encampment. When I was a teenager, I went pretty much every year. I think I did every summer. I went to Pawnee Woods Baptist Encampment for youth camp. So I'm so excited, Travis, uh, for what God's going to do. So thankful for you and what you pour into our kids. What a gift he is to us and our families. If you don't know Travis, raise your hand. Some of you guys don't have students. Like, man, you guys need to know him and Ashley's bride. Such, such incredible gifts. Well, in the middle of the 90s, it would have been in 1994, um, 95, sorry, I was 14 years old. I turned 15 that summer. And it was a very difficult time in my life. I'm just pulling the veil back and being transparent with you guys. I don't know if you get, any of you guys have ever experienced divorce in your life. Uh, many of you guys most likely have. Uh, my parents uh, had separated and when I was 12. And they, they had a, a really, just, I understand that of the day, <laughs> a really bad three years in, the, in that in-between, uh, they were divorced when I was 15. Three years of really horrible uh, things that happened, and I won't even go into those things. But at, in that time, here's what I learned. When I can rely on no one else or nothing else in this world, God can be relied upon. I learned that. Like, I'm just telling you the truth. Like, uh, God was my rock in that time. And it was in that time of hurt and brokenness that in that year, 1995, I went to Piney Woods Baptist Camp for youth camp. And I was just doing my thing, you know, that 14-year-olds do. I was having a good time. And I have a brother that's two years older. He's also a pastor. And two years before that, uh, he had been called to the ministry. And ever since then, he's been a pastor. He's just like 16 years old. He took his first pastor at 16 years old. Can you imagine 16 years old. Wow. And he made a statement that uh, I'll never forget. I'm going to come back to that. But when I was 14, 
and it was right there. I'll never forget. It was right there at Pine Woods Baptist Camp. They had an old chapel. It was their original first building that they had built that they would go and worship. It was a small chapel. And with my youth group around me, I knelt right there that summer, and I gave my life to the Lord, just completely surrendered and said, God, I'll just, I'm gonna, I know you've called me to full-time vocational ministry for the rest of my life. And I've been doing that ever since, and I love it. I love what I do. It's so hard sometimes, but I wake up every morning loving what I do. I love you guys. I'm committed to you guys. I will not give up no matter what comes our way. I love what I do. But that, that day, I remember that night just saying, God, I give up my ambition. I give up my pursuit of my own ambition. And God, I only want to do what you want me to do. And I, I surrendered. But before that, just a little bit before that, my brother... Brad made a statement. He doesn't always say good things, but sometimes he does. He made a statement, and he said this. Many times people know God is there, and they have a knowledge of him, but it's like they're, they see him through binoculars, and that's the illustration that he used. I'll just never forget. For me, it was powerful that day. And, and, and what he was saying was you can know that God is out there and you can even know his character in some ways, but you're, if, you're, if you still, still feel and think that he is distant, it's as if you're looking to, to him and at him with binoculars. And what he, said, what he said that day is that does not, never has to be the case. That God is not a God distant. God is incarnational and with us all the time. And God never leaves us. We leave him. And so what he was saying is, look, put away the binoculars and trust that God is with you. And that, like with you, what he was saying was like, God is here and hear from him. See him and listen to him. And that resounded to me that day. I had been for a long time. I'd known God. Man, I'd not taken those binoculars away and just listened. Like, just stopped and listened to what God might say to me. And God very clearly, he didn't write it on the wall. But God said, look, you need to commit to this. This is who you are. This is what I've made you to be. This is what I've called you to do. And I knelt in a, in a spirit of brokenness. I cried. I wept like a baby. I'm, I'm surprised I'm not weeping now because I did in the first service when I told the story. Because it was a real sense that, God, I, I release all ownership, all ownership. I am yours and yours alone. And I'll give my life to you. Man, that's good. You see, I got that, I got that reality that God is not a product to be sold, that he is a creator to be known. And he is with us. And here's why I'm saying this today is he is with us today, just as he was in 1995 for me. He is still with me. He is with you today. And if you feel distant from God today, that same compassionate God that allowed me back to him that day, he will allow you back to him right now in this moment. Do you realize that today? Yes, he's righteous. Yes, he's just. Yes, there is consequences and wrath for us running away. But there is always compassion and kindness. And where sin increases, grace abounds all the more, my friends. Today, if you feel distant from God, if you've never known him, realize this. All you have to do is turn to him. Take those blinders off and move those binoculars away from your eyes. And he will, he will show you that he is here. And that's why I implore you today in closing. I don't really know how you should respond to this message. I really don't other than I want you to know who Jesus is. 
I want you to know that he is here. And because of his grace, you can know him like I know him. I know him. I haven't figured all things out. I got a long way to go, my friends. But Jesus is real. His love is real. And if you see him, it will transform you so completely, my friends. If you're here today, you're like, man, I have no idea. I mean, I know some of these things, but I've never experienced that. I hope today that you do respond, that you would hold on and you would practice that truth that if you draw near to him, he will draw near to you out of the book of James. That is true. That will always be true today. So today, I, wherever you are in your relationship with God today, I hope, you to, I, to, I hope today that you take steps toward him. I really do. Let's pray together. Jesus, we acknowledge today that you are a gracious and humble and kind and righteous and powerful Savior creator. We thank you that you are here. You never push us away when we run back to you. And I pray for a sea of people in this room and around the world that see this, that in new and fresh ways, take the blinders off and let you in, that you would recline with them, that you would make a home in them, and that would manifest its, that truth as they show kindness, as they stand for truth around them. Jesus, I pray that for our church, that we would be a church defined by compassion and truth, that we would be well known for not wavering, but be so well known for extending kindness and grace and mercy, that this would be a lighthouse of truth, but God, it would be truly a hospital for the sick. We pray for that, and we thank you that it is that, But even more so, God, may it be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.